Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up with our reading of step number four on obedience, the spirit of obedience and its practice. And we are on page 89, for those who just joined the group, and paragraph 91 down at the bottom of the page. And so uh, some beautiful insights into obedience and his practice this evening, as well as a few illustrative stories that he's going to give us. And uh, before we move on to the next step, penitence. So paragraph 91. He who is not alone, but with others, cannot derive so much profit from psalmody as from prayer, for the confusion of voices renders the psalms indistinct. Uh, I remember posting this online once, and somebody said, doesn't that go contrary to the established belief that uh, saying the psalms in common with other people is typically how it's done, certainly within monastic life. Uh, the praying of the hours of the office, the, the chanting of the Psalms is done in common. So what is it that John is, is saying here? And uh, I think he's acknowledging that sometimes when we are praying in a group, in particular things like the Psalms, uh, we can be moving at a pace that prevents us from really meditating upon what we are saying or singing. And uh, so desert monasticism might be different in this way, that there's such a value put on stillness, silence, and slowing things down internally, avoiding distractions, that uh, something like, even such, something such as praying the Psalms, they might look at differently. That if you are alone, you would be able to set the pace, be able to... Uh, uh, listen to what it is that you're praying and not be distracted by the others around you and what pace they are saying the Psalms are chanting them. And so this does go against sort of the common practice, uh, but it can, as he says, it can make it indistinct. And sometimes uh, I've often found the same thing with saying the rosary in a group of people that always there's somebody who's going really fast or there's somebody that's going very slow. And sometimes it can sound like a jumble of voices or it can be distracting in that regard. And I think John has the same thing in mind here that, uh, that it can actually be easier, especially for one who's immersed in silence for the majority of their day when they are praying vocally uh, which most of the monks would have done with the Psalms, even on their own, or the Jesus prayer would have been done vocally, not, not silently, uh, that it's easier to set that pace and to, to hear the words that you are praying. And uh, I don't want to make too much of this. I mean, I, I think it's good both ways, certainly to be able to pray the office in common, uh, but I, I do understand what he's saying that the, the words are important and to be able to say them distinctly. Like Philip Neary, uh, who I often bring up and have great devotion to, would often, uh, if people made mistakes in saying the office, would make them stop and then repeat it. That it is not something meant to be uh, done quickly or haphazardly. And uh, we are to be attentive to the words and how we are praying them. And I think, again, this is what John has in mind, that we want to be meditating upon what is being said in the Psalms and how it applies to us and not rushing through it. Okay. Number 92, constantly wrestle with your thought and whenever it wanders, call it back to you. God does not require from those still under obedience prayer completely free from of distractions. Do not despond when your thoughts are plundered, but take courage and unceasingly recall your mind. And viability is proper only to an angel. 
So we, we should not become discouraged when in the, the this movement and the struggle of moving from a multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity, that if it doesn't come to us naturally or easily, or even uh, over the course of years, that uh, it's we aren't angels, he's saying, that we are in this constant state of receptivity in and through our senses, as well as having minds that are easily distracted uh, or our imagination, again, can come into play as well. We have a lot that feeds into our thoughts that can pull us away from being attentive only to God. And so not to become despondent or sad when we might find ourselves, even for a whole day, uh, struggling simply to rein in our thoughts and to, to move them towards Christ. And uh, that this is part of the, the ascetic struggle for us and, uh, and not to become discouraged if there are times where it becomes very difficult. And, uh, you know, I think when I first started reading the Fathers, it, it, this whole notion of moving from multiplicity to simplicity in thought is what struck me the most. Uh, because I, that certainly had never been part of my thinking uh, in general or even about the spiritual life uh, once I, I became Catholic, that uh, it seemed to be the natural flow of things where you would sort of follow your thoughts and your feelings. And so this idea that asceticism is focused precisely on the thoughts that we have, that that's where the real battle lies, was it was an eye-opening thing for me, and also something that was immensely helpful. Uh, I think, uh, you know, certainly coming to uni uh, university, a very large university, uh, where you're surrounded by so many things that are vying for your attention, that, uh, that you can be in this constant state of distraction. So, so to have counsel and guidance in this fashion, saying, okay, this is where you want to direct your attention. Uh, and in the ascetical life, this is going to be one of the primary disciplines that you want to foster. And that is going to then direct how it is that we pray in large part, uh, in the sense of using imagination uh, and uh, letting our minds wander, that this isn't something that was... Uh, fostered in the Eastern spiritual tradition. It's not as though uh, it's a thoughtlessness, but it's a focused thought upon Christ uh, that, that gives us strength in the spiritual battle. That part of dealing with temptation, for example, in our life uh, is that thoughts will be plaguing us and seeking to draw us uh, into particular passions and if we can gently move the, the mind and the heart toward Christ and our focus upon him, this is where we uh, enter into a kind of communion where we find the strength and the grace that we need uh, to overcome these temptations. And so it's not even a wrestling with the thoughts so much as it is uh, allowing oneself to, to redirect one's thoughts toward God. And this is why the short prayers, such as the Jesus prayer, uh, become uh, the main focus. You know, a lot of the early monks would simply use rocks to, you know, as they said, each prayer would sort of toss another rock into a, a pile, not just to add sort of a, a, a bodily element to that prayer to help them with, direct their thoughts they would say something like the Jesus prayer or, or even simply the name of Jesus in order to keep their thoughts from wandering. And uh, it's not that they didn't meditate upon certain things from the scriptures, but I think in and through the course of the day, when they're engaged in work or when they could not be engaged in, say, meditation on some part of the mystery uh, of Christ's life, uh, that they would make use of these short prayers to keep their minds from wandering uh, uh, in every direction. 
And uh, again, you know, I think if we were to be attentive to that for a day, we would be surprised just how difficult it is to still the heart in this fashion. Ambrose Little. About meditating on what's in the office, part of the purpose of the antiphons and the brief meditation at the start of each psalm canticle is to give mind and mind an anchor for that meditation, not too dissimilar from the mysteries of the rosary, right? Perhaps the antiphons were added after Climacus to help address the challenge of focus during communal psalmody. Uh, more than likely. And uh, I did get the wit to witness uh, the office in, in Egypt, and it was more of a flowing uh, kind of thing, all chanted, and, uh, and certainly a lot more of the Psalms were chanted uh, during any particular hour of the office. And, uh, and so, you know, certainly the monks would spend much more time engaged in the prayer. And so it, it is and was a part of their practice to chant the Psalms. I think John is simply making, and that's why I don't want to make too much of it, that he's saying that at times it can be distracting, that there is a value to praying the Psalms on one's own as well, where you can set the, the pace. It's not the group setting the pace. So he's not disparaging the common practice so much as he's saying that it can be easier for us to take hold of what is being said, because we can stop if something, uh, if one of the lines of the Psalm speaks to the heart, one can pause in one's meditation rather than being drawn along in the flow. And so, but praying the Psalms in common really has been part of the monastic life, you know, from the beginning. Any other comments? Okay. Number 93. He who has secretly vowed not to retire from the struggle till his last breath and to endure a thousand deaths of body and soul will not easily fall into any of these defects. For inconstancy of heart and infidelity to one's place always cause stumblings and disasters. Those who easily go from place to place are complete failures, for nothing causes fruitlessness so much as impatience. So there was a kind of monk in their day uh, that, uh, was, you know, they were sort of seen as being problematic and not living a good life. And it was a monk that would go from monastery to monastery, uh, relying upon the hosp hospitality of any given place and staying there for a period of time, but then moving on. So there was a kind of inconstancy and instability about their life that prevented the formation of those virtues on the level that John is speaking about, say, for example, with obedience. It's by living in the common life over the course of years that our kind of uh, willfulness is overcome. Whereas if one is, uh, if there's an inconstancy and one is moving from place to place, uh, then there's never uh, any development that takes place. Uh, Marco writes, would those be the gyrobugs? St. Benedict very sparingly talks about. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, that was what they were called. And part of the, the reason for it was this constant movement. Uh, but in the spiritual life as a whole, I think what John is saying here uh, is very important, that we want to establish a kind of constancy and stability and practice. So creating a role for ourselves and holding to it, uh, because there is a kind of changeability about the human mind and heart. We will shift around from thing to thing or from spiritual practice to spiritual practice. And when things get really difficult, we will think about changing our external surroundings uh, in order to get away from what is difficult. And for a little while, that might work you know, changing and altering the external circumstances 
uh, can bring a kind of emotional relief. But we take the same person with us wherever we go. And so, so if we're constantly moving, we're not going to address the, the deeper uh, struggles that we have, you know, both in terms of our temperament, but also the specific temptations that we struggle with or the passions that have taken root within us. It's in the, this kind of constancy, stability of life, uh, both in terms of our role of prayer and where we are, uh, that is important. And, you know, we've lost a little bit of this in our day uh, that people move frequently. And uh, we don't have the luxury, I think, that once existed about being in a religious community or a, a kind of Catholic culture where people knew each other very well and could attend each other you know, not only in terms of physical needs, but one's spiritual needs as well, that friendships would develop over the course of time, spiritual friendships that would help a person grow in the spiritual life. And I think, you know, growing up, you know, my father wasn't a climber, you know, in terms of uh, his profession, but it still, uh, demanded that we move every four or five years. And just thinking about that purely from uh, the perspective of day-to-day -day life, you're, you have to put down new roots, set up a new home, make new friends, enter into a new school district. So there, it creates this kind of instability. You're never able to put down roots. And uh, for the spirituality that's being put forward here, uh, for us that we're, we're told often that it, it takes years, sometimes decades, to see the full fruit of our ascetical practices. And so having stability in life, constancy in life, allows us to attend to what's going on internally. If things are constantly changing in our external life, we often will remain on the superficial level, on the surface level, uh, because we are uh, so distracted with all the ex external realities that we have to restructure again. And uh, this doesn't mean that the spiritual life is impossible now, but we, I think we really have to work harder to create a kind of st uh, stability for ourselves and simplicity of life uh, that allows us to be attentive to the things that are more important, what's going on interiorly. Any thoughts or, or comments? I think I find this especially uh, in the kinds of discussions that take place in our day about religion. And often it has more to do with, you know, theological uh, points of theology or discussions about liturgy uh, or discussions about what's going on within the church, but not a lot in terms of the interior life, uh, because to do that requires a kind of sustained attention and, uh, and not only attention, but practice, uh, where one is able to learn through experience. Whereas if we're constantly simply looking at the faith on an intellectual level, on a notional level, it's not the same thing as living it and seeking to form the mind and the heart and to put on the mind of Christ. Paragraph 94. If you come to an unknown physician and hospital, behave though as though you were, passing by and secretly test the life and spiritual experience of all those living there. And when you begin to feel the benefit of the doctors and nurses and get relief from your sicknesses, especially with regard to your spirit special disease, namely spiritual pride, then go to them and buy it with the gold of humility and write the contract on the parchment of obedience with the letters of service and with the angels as witnesses and tear up and destroy in their presence the parchment of your own will. 
by going from place to place, you squander the price with which Christ brought, bought you. Let the monastery be your tomb before the tomb. For no one will come out of the grave until the general resurrection. And if some have left the tomb, see, they are dead. Let us implore the Lord that this may not happen to us. And so here in John, we, we hear this image being used that is so often used by the Eastern Fathers of the church as being a hospital. And certainly they would see the, the monastery as functioning in this way as well, as help in helping us to deal with the, the disease, the spiritual disease, disease of, our, of our sin. And so what John is saying here is that uh, as you, if you come to a monastery, it would be like going to the hospital, a hospital ahead of time, and observing the skill of the physicians or the nurses and how well they, they function and the healing that they bring to others. And so John is saying you want to be discerning when looking at a community that uh, you, to, to see th their spiritual well-being and the health that they bring to others. And to find such a thing is to find something that is precious. And so John is saying once you've found it, then you give everything to gain entrance. And you create this contract in the witness of, of the angels of your willingness to give your life over fully, to live in obedience, and uh, to live in humility uh, until death. And uh, to, so to set aside in uh, a very clear and uh, uh, a permanent fashion, one's own self-will. And, uh, and so he describes it as the tomb before the tomb. Uh, there's an inscription in one monastery that says, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. And I've often, it sounds sort of humorous when you say it, but this is basically what John is saying. If you die before you die, if you die to self-will, then you won't die when you die that you've given yourself over completely to Christ and you aren't being self-willed in terms of your life, but seeking rather to do the will of God. And so this is the focus of the monastic life, which isn't different uh, for all of us who are living in the world, that our desire as well is to imitate Christ and his obedience to the heavenly father. And uh, the, the, this should be the food that nourishes us. And if we find within the church something that allows us to live this well and that brings healing, we want to hold on to it as something precious. Uh, and, you know, I think for us, that would be the, the fathers. Uh, in our days, we've often talked about that we, we have access to the fathers like we've never had before. And whatever absence of spiritual elders we have, we have direct access to the writings of the fathers to guide us in the spiritual life. And so once having found this treasure, one wants to hold on to it and hold on to them as guides in the spiritual life, you know, knowing that their lives and their writings have endured throughout the centuries in terms of, of their value. I think I mentioned that uh, in Romania in particular, there's been a, a kind of renewal and resurgence of the faith there, but they did, uh, there was a study of the literature that people had in their homes and the two most common books that people had were the Bible and the Ladder of Divine ascent. And so, you know, that there, there's an understanding there among the religious that certainly the scriptures are our main means to, to know the mind of God, but we find in the fathers uh, these living icons, if you will, if you will, uh, those who become the embodiment 
of the gospel for us by the way they, they live their, their life. And so they make the gospel come alive for us. And so once you see, see this, in, you, have, you get this sense of two things, that there's no going back. Once you see the truth about what goes on within the mind and the heart and the nature of temptation, the struggle with passions, you can't turn away from that. Or you have to do a lot of work to sort of push it out of your mind. Uh, but also you, you begin to see what a treasure house it is, you know, to, to come across the writings of the fathers. Uh, it's often, you know, the first time, the first thing that people often will say to me is, you know, why am I hearing this for the first time when I'm in my 20s or 30s or 40s or even 70s, 80s? Uh, why am I just hearing this now? And, you know, certainly part of the reason of, for that is the accessibility of these readings. But the sadder part is that it hasn't been taught, that there has been a disconnect, especially uh, for many generations, a disconnect from the, the, uh, the spiritual tradition at its roots. And I think you know, the good thing about the Second Vatican Council is that there was a, a specific call to go back to the sources, to do precisely this, to take hold of what is going to be healing and nourishing to us. This is not spirituality light, you know, and I think the church wants us, you know, the best and the beautiful is meant for all, not just for, for the monks. And, we, we, you know, we, we should want every Christian to have access to this because it is the best and the beautiful that we have and most beautiful that we have as Christians, the spiritual tradition. Okay. Anything about this particular paragraph? Okay. Number 95. When the senses find the orders heavy, the more lazy decide that they would prefer to devote themselves to prayer. But when they find they are ordered to do something easy, they run from prayer as from fire. So <laughs> I love John's insights that, you know, when uh, things are difficult and you're asked to do something difficult, uh, then, you know, it comes into mind to run to prayer. Uh, rather than fulfill the call to obedience. And yet when it's an easy task, one will then want to uh, leave prayer in order to go and do it, to become distracted. And uh, we often do that in our day-to-day -day work too, that we'll, we'll pick the easy things to do when it really makes more sense in our day-to-day -day life when you, you are sort of making an outline uh, a list of things to, to accomplish during the day. You should start with the hardest and the things that are most important and work your way down through that, not start with the easiest and less important. And uh, often we will do this though. And uh, the day will pass, you know, we'll get spit, put in our time, but not, not really put in a full day's work or bear the fruit uh, that uh, are, are working hard and with a kind of clarity would bring. And uh, I've mentioned here before that the monks described their, their work as their obedience for the day when they were given their task. And I think that's a good thing for us to sort of take hold of again, that you know, what we do you know, in our families or, you know, in whatever work that we do, that we take hold of it as coming to us from God. And we take it up with a kind of zeal uh, as though we are, are doing it for him. And in, for, in reality, it, we are, that this is where God has placed us. These are the labors that he's given us. And so we, we take it up with a kind of joy and, and zealousness. Daniel writes, that is shockingly practical for parents. I would love to do an all-night vigil when my toddler is screaming during the night. But if he sleeps, last thing, the last thing I'd want is to be woken up. And that same example during the day as well. 
Right. I think it is very practical and it's rooted in experience that we, we can be lazy and we will choose the thing that is least costly for us, not necessarily discerning what is most important or what is going to bear the most fruit for ourselves and for others. And it's practical because it's rooted in praxis and practice. Number 96, some undertake a particular duty, but for a brother's peace of mind, at his request, they leave it. And some leave their work through laziness, and some do not leave it out of vainglory, and some do not leave it out of zeal. So interesting here, he, draw, he draws our attention to different ways that we undertake these, these duties. One would be for a brother's peace of mind. So if a brother is struggling or needs our help in some way, uh, a person with charity without question will break away from their work, let it go and attend to, to their brother. And so we'll, we'll leave off without giving it a second thought. Some leave their work through laziness, so just to get away from it, from doing it. Some do not leave out of vainglory. So some will work hard and beyond what is measured because it feeds the ego or self-esteem. Uh, and this can be a more subtle thing for us. You know, there, there are often those who take a kind of pride in, you know, working incredibly hard putting in long hours, never giving themselves any, any rest. And uh, they're, you know, this isn't necessarily driven by the desire for God or the spirit of obedience, that we are seeking to fulfill what God has done, done for us, that we keep on laboring because we, we feel that it raises us in other people's estimation, that they see us as hard workers or, or it increases our, our view of ourself, that we see ourselves as being productive. And then finally, some do not leave off, do not leave it out of zeal. So some will, out of a true zeal for God, and invest themselves and go the extra mile, uh, whether it's for others or, or for God, that they'll, they'll press on beyond what is in accord with, you know, the human strength or energy uh, out of their love for God. So that some can be led by love to, to really pursue their work and work at it and do their work uh, uh, well because of their desire to please God. So, you know, being, attention, being attentive to one's motivations in the spiritual life becomes very important because it often can be very subtle and the evil one will work on us. You remember some of the stories we read in the Africatinos where an elder will watch, you know, a monk chopping wood like a maniac, you know, thinking that, oh, I'm going to build up my supply so that I don't have to do this for a while. And the elder has this ability to see with a kind of clarity and he sees that there's a demon sort of whipping him, driving him on in the work uh, so that he works beyond measure. And in doing so, it avoids the other more important things in his life, which would be the, the life of, of prayer. And uh, we see this in the world. Sometimes the people will avoid their responsibility to family, friends, uh, even their own health and well-being, uh, because they're so driven uh, by, by their work. It provides a certain kind of identity that, especially in our culture, has become very important. Self-made self man, self-made woman, climbing the ladder, that this can often be something that uh, becomes distorted and begins to control a person's sense of their uh, uh, self-worth and value in the world. Any comments? All right. 97. If you have bound yourself by obligations, 
and perceive that the eye of your soul is not becoming loosened. Do not request to leave, leave to quit. The proven are proven everywhere, and the reverse is equally true. In the world, slander has caused many separations, but in communities, gluttony produces every fall and disobedience. If you roll over your mistress, i.e. your stomach, every place of residence will give you dispassion. But if she rolls over you, then outside the tomb, you will be in danger everywhere. So, you know, if the eye of your soul, the noose, the eye of the heart is clouded, that we're still overcome by the passions and are not making spiritual gain, do not immediately think, I, again, I need to change my place because we again we take the same person with us that what we are to look at is what is the dominant passion what are we giving ourselves over to that may be weakening us and john puts his finger on the first of the the vices of the eight vices which is gluttony that if we are unable to control this fundamental appetite if we, we our will is weak in this regard, then no matter where we go, we are going to be vulnerable in, in some way. That uh, we're, if we haven't strengthened our will and ordered this appetite, how are we going to strengthen our will and order our appetites in, in another place? So stay put, continue to struggle, identify the prominent passion and work on that with your spiritual elder. And we sort of have to work from the outside in, in the spiritual life, you know, to struggle with the more bodily passions or those passions that are rooted in the bodily appetites. And so gluttony, lust, avarice, the things that have to do with the world or appeal to the senses and uh and this these aren't easy i mean we can struggle for years and years to gain freedom there uh but unless we engage in that struggle it's hard for us to to make advancement in the spiritual life any comments about about that this is where the the fathers shine i mentioned uh in a, a previous discussion reading cassian's uh section from his institutes or the conferences on the eight vices he really does a wonderful job in defining and describing them but also putting forward the remedies uh that the the fathers show us to overcome them and i've produced a little booklet and had ren is the one who actually put it together uh on on this and so maybe we can i'm sure we have it on uh somewhere that we'll put it on the website as soon as we we get that up and running daniel i had a question above about the previous section okay this makes me think okay this makes me think can god allow things mentioned here such as vainglory to keep the monk in his cell. I think God allows us to, to see these things emerge, that when we are negligent in some way or lazy, where we aren't being attentive to these subtle movements of the mind and the heart, that God will allow us to experience the consequence of that, you know, the dissipation that we experience or the immoderation uh and and work or any other area of our life in order to highlight what we are neglecting and certainly for the monk who is given himself over uh to this life of obedience but really let go of a lot of the worldly cares the temptation is going to be to, to move away from the cell move away from his silent that silence to distract himself and one of the things that they would distract themselves with would be work and taking it to the extreme. Johnny Ross writes, interesting that the evil one first tempted Christ with bread in the desert. Right. You know, cast off 
this human poverty that you've embraced with all of its hungers and needs and make use of your uh, divinity of your power and change the stones into bread. Why, why deal with and experience that inner emptiness from not eating? Uh, Christ is, you know, had fasted for 40 days. And so it's where he was most vulnerable at that moment, feeling hungry, we are told. And so this is exactly where the evil one tempts him. You know, take the stones, cast off the weakness, and turn them into in, into into bread for yourself. And then Adam and Eve's fall was breaking the only role of fasting he had given them. Right of you know coveting the one thing that they were told they could not have, and uh, the hunger begins with what they see and what they cannot have, and so they begin to desire it regardless of the consequence. Okay. So number 98. The Lord who makes wise the blind opens the eyes of the obedient to the virtues of their guide, and he blinds them to his defects. But the hater of good does the opposite. So, the more one loves one's spiritual guide, the more one is going to see them through the eyes of love, and so see that which is good within them, their virtue. And when we are driven by our own sin or, uh, or by hatred or love of evil, we begin to look uh, for the weaknesses in others in order to raise us up in our, again, in our own estimation. Uh, we begin to look at others with a suspicious eye, rather than, again, looking for what is good in them. And so the person who's grown in virtue and humility in particular is, is always going to see that which is good in the other and to excuse the, the weaknesses or defects or acknowledge that those uh, Defects do not strip the person of their dignity in Christ. Uh, and, and so it doesn't alter their, their perception of the other. And I think we can see how easily we can move in that opposite direction. You know, to, to look at others immediately with the eye of suspicion, to look them up and down, to judge them by externals, and, uh, and lose sight of their fun fundamental dignity. And we can take a kind of pleasure in that too, a morbid delight in being able to look down upon others or to look at them in a harsh way. Because it can make us feel better about ourselves or distract us from the, the things that we struggle with. Let's see, number 99. Let us find in what is called quicksilver an image of perfect obedience. For though we roll it, it, it under any material, it will mix with no defilement. So quicksilver, I had to look this up, it's mercury. <laughs> I'd never, you know, had, it's not, wasn't common part of my uh, vocabulary, but, uh, so it sort of rolls off of everything and everything rolls off of it. And it's a wonderful image that nothing can stick to it, no defilement. And I think this spirit of obedience uh, allows that too. If we're not clinging to self-will, nothing then is going to cling to us. We aren't going to be defiled by the things around us. We are going to seek to hold fast to the will of God as well as to the will of our superior. And uh, so obedience then becomes this great pathway to virtue and one of the straightest paths for us to virtue because we aren't pulled down by the things that often will cling to us when we, when we are holding on to the, our self-will. It's interesting when you give a, a long, slow read to something like this, why 
the monks would love these virtues, you know, because I think our common, the connotation that goes along with obedience, again, is this kind of slavishness, somebody pushing us around or being a doormat and having no self-image or no, no will whatsoever. And what we see here, it's a rightly ordered will that directs us toward God and that which is good and brings us a kind of freedom. And so obedience should, in our mind, uh, what we should associate it with, with it is true freedom. And a true self begins to emerge that we're not embracing the illusion and getting caught up in this false self that we work so hard to create. Now, it's, I think it's safe to say that even within the church, obedience hasn't often been understood correctly, and that includes religious communities. It can be used in some pretty negative ways. Daniel wrote a freedom from one's own self-will, right? Any other thoughts or comments? All right. Number 100. Oh, somebody put their hand up. Ashley. Ashley writes, I haven't completely finished the article I'm going to mention, but it's Father Freeman's most recent article about the ego. Yes, I, I read that today as well. And how we can create a false reality about our state in life, about God, and how we fall into the danger of placing zero boundaries when it comes to our ego. We live an aimless life or a life according to me. And we can even delude ourselves into being obedient to our idea of what we think is true or what is godly. I think St. John is talking about something similar. And if we, give our, if we give ourselves over to despondency instead of humility and diligence. Right. So Father Freeman, Stephen Freeman, is an Orthodox priest and great writer. Uh, he uh, writes on a website called I think it's called Glory to God in All Things. And, uh, but he wrote a beautiful article today where he talks about desiring to take up iconography when he was in seminary. And he had no experience in painting. He knew nothing about iconography. And he you know, read a bunch of things. And then he, he made an icon. And he asked somebody who was an artist to look at it and tell him what he thought. And he said, I had hoped he was going to say, it looks like Christ. But the artist laughed and said, it looks like you. And, uh, and he realized that he was right, that unless one is living the spiritual life, that what we are going to project out onto God, onto Christ, is this image of the self. Our ego can be so strong that without even knowing it, without being conscious of it, we would paint something, and even an icon, and it would take on this image of ourself because what we've made our ego is our, we've made ourselves God. And so quite naturally then, we are going to project out onto God aspects of ourself. And so what Ashley says here, I think is right on the mark. We can delude ourselves into being obedient to our idea of what we think is true or what we think is godly. I think that's really well put, that we can put on this religious identity and think that we are being obedient to God when it's really a God of our own creating, just in the same way that Father Stephen created that icon that looked like him. We can create a God that looks like this and we'll be obedient to it, and we're, and, but in reality, we are fulfilling our own deepest desires to be the center of the universe. Johnny Ross writes, many have created God in their own image instead of the other way around. It's, it's the problem, I think, for us through, throughout the ages, you know, that there's this false image of the self that emerges. Ego is always the, the problem there. Uh, you know, sin brings a kind of disordered view of the self. 
because our focus is we don't see ourselves in relation to God and our identity in relation to God. And when that begins to break down, we lose a true self sense of who we are as human beings. And to fill that void, we will work very hard to create something to fill it. It never does. And I think that's why we are often driven constantly to pursue one thing after another to, to fill that empty space within us that only God can fill. And it's only through, through what's being described here of letting go of the illusion and in and through obedience, taking hold of that identity again, that we find that's where we find true freedom. And we realize, gee, we wasted a lot of time, you know, running around trying to search desperately for something when it's been offered to us freely. And, you know, we'll exhaust ourselves pursuing so many different things that come to nothing. Okay, number 100. Let the zealous be particularly attentive to themselves, lest by condemning the careless, they themselves incur worse condemnation. And I think the reason why Lot was justified was because though living among such people, he never seems to have condemned them. An interesting insight. I think when we read that story of Lot, that's probably not the first thought that comes to our mind. But experientially, I think when we look at what John is saying here, uh, he's right on, right on the mark that uh, they described one of the faculties of the soul as the insensitive faculty. Uh, we are, it's what allows us to become incensed by something that is contrary to the will of God or contrary to what is good. And so it allows us to act with a kind of aggression, but aggression directed toward what it should be directed towards, which is our own sin or anything that would pull us away from God. And that makes us act swiftly or when we're, we encounter injustice in the world too, that it allows us to see it quickly and to act. But when uh, our desires are disordered and we are in the grip of our passions often john is what john is telling us here is we'll direct that insensitive faculty or power towards others and we'll see every weakness and flaw within them and we'll condemn them and in the end we end up condemning our, ourselves because we we make ourselves judge of the other this is a hard thing to overcome, you know, because, and we'll hear the father say it over and over again, even if you see with your own eyes, somebody committing a particular sin, not to make a judgment of it or of them, because we don't see all ends. We don't see what gives rise to it. We don't see the particular temptations that they are struggling with. And so we are to leave the, the judgment to God and we are to see again the radical solidarity that we have with them in that struggle and what should emerge from us should be mercy empathy the thought there but the grace of god go i and we should be praying for them and and making sacrifices for them uh but not judging uh let's see here's a comment here m uh md is this marco yeah a bit tangential, but the previous paragraph and comments reminded me of something the painter said in the movie, A Hidden Life. When the main character saw him painting Christ in a chapel and praised him for it, the painter's reply was very interesting. What we do is just create sympathy. What we do is just create sympathy. We create, we create admirers. We don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. You don't want to be reminded of it. So we don't have to see what happens to the truth. A darker time is coming when men will be more clever. They won't 
fight the truth. They'll just ignore it. Won't fight yet for the truth. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture, not yet. Someday I'll, I'll paint the true Christ. Right. And this, again, this sort of takes us back to what Stephen Freeman was saying, that how, how do we, and this goes with speaking about Christ as well, how do we communicate to others, whether it's through art or through our words or through our deeds, if we do not have an experiential knowledge of Christ, if we do not know him, and if we aren't living in communion with him and by his grace, if we have not put on the mind of Christ, what we are going to present is going to be a distorted image. Fulton Sheen once said this, you know, that what mo most people are rejecting is this false image of Christ. They're not rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting the false image that's so often put before them by Christian men and women. And so, you know, again, you know, not enough time is spent focusing upon the interior life and the struggle with the passions and putting on Christ, living in intimacy with him. Now, I was reading St. Mark the Ascetic today. He was saying that to pray is the greatest thing that one can do, is the greatest of all virtues, because it draws us into this intimacy with Christ that allows us to love God and love others in the way that God desires. And so it is to open ourselves to God with kind of vulnerability and allow him to transform us by his grace. And when we aren't doing this or unwilling to do this, again, we might be laboring very hard, but not, not by the grace of God or with his strength, but with the clarity that he alone can give to us. Daniel. Sorry, I don't really have this typed out. That's all right. You can just um, go ahead and say it. But that last that last section about Lot and um, it, it, it is interesting because it's not what I would think about when I read it. But it did it did make me start thinking that like it's also just again very practical because like you know whatever example you want to use. It could be like today there are today there's like a massive temptation, I think, to always be like um, championing a cause or something. Right. Like like so, you know, how many causes are there to end world hunger or something yet? World hunger is probably only increasing. But then how many times do people even take notice of a hungry person or like you know, and you could use that example probably within the church or within anything, you know what I mean? Like, it's always this big thing out here, which is kind of like um, condemning something, right? Mm -hmm. Lot not condemning something is able to also see kind of like the reality of the situation around him. Right. He had purity of heart that allows him then to hear God and to follow God's guidance, if he would have condemned others, if his focus was upon them in that kind of way, then he would not have been able to hear God or to receive the direction that God was giving him. And it's a dangerous thing for us, you know, because I, I think for men and women of faith in particular, you know, because we feel that, you know, that, that it is our job to protect the truth or to defend Christ as if we could defend or protect him, or if, as if we could defend the truth, and uh, rather than simply living it. What we were called to is to bear witness to it, and to live it, and live in it. And because it's, it's a mystery that's far greater than we can articulate or put into words anyways. And uh, often, I think, again, we lose sight of it. You know, we, we feel that we can talk people or argue people or force them in, into the faith. And this has come up over and over again in history. It's not new to our time. But it is often this, you know, 
idea that we're, we're placing ourselves in the place of God. We are making ourselves the judge. One of the hardest things to do is suspend judgment. You know. And not to be quick, to, to not lose sight of the other. Certainly not to lose sight of God, but not to lose sight of the other, the person standing before us and their dignity. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. Anyone have any final comments on, on this section? Okay. Well, thank you again. And thank you for all of your comments. Wonderful and beautiful as always. And uh, when we close, as always, with the with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God.